Our next speaker almost needs no introduction, but that would be, you know, cheapening his accomplishments. I know that Mike is such a, um, I don't know what the correct word for it is, but low, low, uh, excuse me, we're getting adjusted here. He, we take advantage, or take for granted, I think, that Mike is one of the leading experts in the world in the field of HIV treatment. And at Emory, we have this thing called a Millipub Club, where if you have one paper that's been cited by a thousand others, we have a special ceremony and give you an award and a plaque and you know, get your picture in the paper. Mike has five patients, uh, papers that have been cited over a thousand times. And so he truly is one of the leaders in our field. And you know, it's, we're lucky to have him here as our senior faculty member. And we're going to launch into the case discussion. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Um, so, like before, those of you who've been here before, <clears throat> what I'll do during the year is I track the types of questions that I'll get from clinicians or things that I overhear in the clinic, and I'll also send out a request to all of our providers and say, what are the top two or three issues that you're struggling with the most now? And then I convert those into cases that we discuss here. and. Um, so that's what we're going to do today. Some of the questions are similar uh, to what I did last year, but the answers are different. That's kind of cool. Um, and, and I will tell you that the question that I had in the MOC or the pretest, uh, I'm going to go into great detail on. I, I can understand why everybody answered the way they did, uh, but, but the most correct answer was the one that 26% got correct. Uh, so we'll go over that as we go. So have a panel here, um, about as many people as we could squeeze on the, the dais as possible. On the far end is uh, Dr. Carlos Del Rio, who everybody knows from Emory here, Jeff. Um, Dr. Bruce, who is visiting from Yale, and he is going to talk to us um, about opioids a little bit later. Dr. Howard Lidman is from um, Beth Israel Hospital in Boston, and he's going to talk to us about primary care in a little bit. And Dr. Susanna Nagy from Duke um, is going to talk to us about Hep C later. So this is a preview of coming attractions. And Dr. Gandhi, you've already heard from. So um, let's get going. So uh, these are my disclosures. They're in the uh, in the handout. We're going to go through a bunch of things. So I think almost every question has a learning objection. Uh, objective, and this is kind of how I organize it to get everybody oriented, so you're not struggling as you read the question to figure out, read the case to figure out what the what the issue or the question is. We're going to give you the question up front, and then you can focus on on the details. So, first one's pretty simple. What initial regimen should I use? I might need new time on the clock. Yep. Okay. So the first case, 48-year-old guy newly diagnosed. Um, is asymptomatic, viral load is 28,000, reasonably high CD4 count, 650, HLA-B5701 positive, wild type genotype, no medical history to speak of, normal renal function, he's okay to start if you say so. So with that in mind, what regimen might you choose? I'll give you a chance to look at this. Notice that number one is a brand new generic of Favarin's low dose, which is 400 instead of 600 milligrams. And this has been found to be uh, actually less toxic and equally effective um, as a dose. We've probably been overdosing with Favarin's for a while now, like since it was released. Uh, the regimen that you heard Dr. Gandhi talk about, Diotegravir 3TC, 
there's a fixed dose dolutegravir with a Bacavir 3TC, a number of um, TAF FTC regimens that you can look through, um, and some other options at the bottom. So let's go ahead and vote. And the music. There it is. Okay. That musical is coming to Atlanta soon. Kinky Boots, right? All right. So this is meant not for you to get it right. I'm, I'm advertising for Broadway. Um, here we go. So it's a pretty good play. Oops. So let's get the answer. Sorry. Okay, so the majority of people went with a new regimen of BICTAF and FTC. 1% uh, picked an Abacavir regimen, and I'll just comment that's <coughs> going to be bad because they got B5701 positive, sorry. Um, and then let's just turn to the panel. So we'll just pull it up. Just speak up for what you guys would do. Lots of right answers, you know, right? I think a lot of us agreed with the audience, but... Um, one thing to remember is that the fixed dose combination with real pivorine is one of the smallest tablets. So yeah. occasionally in somebody with a low viral load and a high T cell count like this, that might be a good choice if they have difficulty swallowing. Yeah. Howard, um, I, I might just... Just the microphone. Yeah, down. sorry. I might just make an argument uh, to uh, not necessarily pick the newest kid on the block. I think we've been fooled in the past uh, sometimes. Uh, I... I, I Thank you, thank you. Thank you. He's here all week. <laughs> um, there have been many instances historically in the past where drugs look good with the first study or studies, but there are unintended adverse effects or consequences to taking medications. And I've never liked being, I may be in the minority on this panel, but I've never liked being the first prescriber of a new drug combination, especially when we have many other combinations that are equally effective. Uh -huh. So I'm happy being number two or three, but I'd like the other people so to, what experiment, we do here? to experiment on their patients for a short period of <laughs> yeah, time yeah. before I decide to use it. Uh -huh. So what would you have picked? Um, I would probably pick um, TRF, FTC, and Dalutegravir. Okay, so two tablets doesn't bother. Yeah, I don't. I, two tablets doesn't bother me. I mean, I'm not taking them. I take three tablets a day for some other conditions. Yeah, me too. But it's just it's it's once. I think once a day is the key. Yeah. And whether people have to take one or two is not nearly as important. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with with Howard in that there's a nice uh, meta analysis that was done showing that it's not so much the number of tablets as is the time of a day that you have to take them. And there was no difference in that meta-analysis and virologic response between, you know, one tablet once a day, two tablets once a day. Yeah. So I'm just going to add the drug, drug addict perspective on this. So um, not from personal experience, however. Uh, so yes, two tablets may not seem like a lot, but so my patients who are universally substance users, co-infected with hep C and have serious mental illness, we tend to be asking them to take lots and lots of pills for their mental illness and other things. And so two pills can become a, be difficult for a subset of the population, so my subset, who also will get confused about which pill to take. And so I actually would have been going with the TAF, FTC, Repovarine, because it's really small, once a day, and as I already mentioned, the biologic characteristics work. Right, so in the interest of time, there's a lot of correct answers, right? There's really only, one wrong one, which is the Abacavir, simply because of the B57. Mike, Mike. Yeah. Can I just make one comment? Yes, please. In the real world, Bictegravir is still not easily available. And yeah. 
So Howard knew that. That's why he said that. No, no, good, thank you. Yeah, it takes a while. It's in the warehouses, perhaps, but it's not to the, to the street. And sometimes ADAP takes a while to put it on formulary because of, um, oh, sorry, the question, sorry. The point was that the Bictegravir co-formulated product isn't widely available just yet. It's just been released, and so it hasn't penetrated, and that's accurate. One thing I'm going to go into now is, is the question that I put on the test, which said, which at one week, if there's a rise in creatinine of 0.1, which of the following drugs is most likely responsible? And the majority of you picked TDF or TAF. And while that is possible, it is almost assured to happen if somebody's on a cobicistat regimen, or if they're on a dolutegravir regimen, or in this case, the only one that was there was bictegravir. All of those drugs operate in different ways through these transporters, and this was the teaching point, that when we learned about creatinine clearance, at least I'll speak first person, when I learned about it in medical school, it was all about glomerular filtration rate, which you measure by iohexol clearance or inulin or whatever, and that, that your creatinine clearance was all about filtration. Well, since I was in medical school, they discovered that there's actually secretion of creatinine into the tubule at the proximal tubule level. And it's done by these enzymes, uh, either OCT2 or MATE1. And OCT2 is easy for me to remember because that's my birthday, October 2nd. So in this case, OCT2, yay. Um, but if you inhibit it with, with either dilutegravir or bictegravir or MATE1 in the case of Kobe, but almost assuredly, the creatinine is going to go up about 0.1 to 0.15 milligrams per deciliter. It's assured within a week. You'll see it, and this is an example from the dilutegravir studies where people were switched or started on dilutegravir versus efavirenz. The oranges efavirenz estimated creatinine clearance didn't change, or the creatinine didn't change, but here it went up about uh, 0.1. And bictegravir acts the same way, maybe a little bit less less effective in terms of inhibiting that, so it's not maybe 0.1 as opposed to dilutegravir 0.15, but. The reason I bring it up is a key one, because when you bring that patient back after starting them on Bictegravir or Dilutegravir or some Kobe regimen, expect their creatinine to go up a titch and expect their creatinine clearance estimated to go down a bit, but it has nothing to do with GFR and it's not a toxicity. Okay, that was the teaching point. Yeah. One quick point on that ladder. If, I get, if I'm in a confusing situation, I'm trying to figure out if it's the drug or a, you know, the secretion, or if it's real effect, then I use uh, cystatin C. That, that's not based on the serum creatinine, and that sometimes clarifies the picture. So. Right. Okay, so that was a point. So hopefully when you take the post-test, which is the same question, everyone will get that right, and you'll pick big tegravir for that reason. Okay. It's not to say the other two are absolutely wrong, and it would never pass a true ABIM thing, because it's not, the other answers are plausible, and yeah, you got the picture. Okay, let's take the same guy, Except now he's coming in, newly diagnosed, but he has fatigue and weight loss. His viral load is much, much higher, 760,000, and he's got really advanced infection with a CD4 count of 21. Now he's B5701 negative, so you can take that out of the picture. Everything else is the same. So with that in mind, which regimen would you choose? It's basically the same options you just had. Let's go ahead and vote.
Most everybody knows this one, right? One more day. One more day. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to go to the barricade. We're going to wave a big red flag. We're going to watch a young guy get killed and a bunch of others. Yeah. All for a loaf of bread. Never understood that. So that's the news. I thought you had you had this song because this this feels like a lot of the patients we see newly diagnosed at Grady. So it was one more patient like one more patient, one more day. Yes, another day, another patient. Yes. Okay. So let's see, Dr. Gandhi, why don't you comment for us, please, on the dietegovir three TC option? Seven hundred sixty viral thousand yeah. viral load. You know, as I said before, I don't think dogitegravir 3TC for initial therapy is quite there yet. I, it'll be interesting to see what Gemini shows, but I, I wouldn't do it uh, in the setting. And similarly, I wouldn't give the rilpivirine uh, regimen yeah. because the CD4 count's too low and his viral load is too high. Rilpivirine doesn't quite do it if, you're, if your CD4 is below 200 and your viral load's above 100,000. For those um, regimens that work well at high viral loads, the, both those dogitegravir regimens, the abacavir, 3TC and TAF-FTC with Dr. Tegover works very well with high viral loads, so I think both of those are, are good options, um, and Big Tegover similarly, but, um, you know, obviously it depends on experience and availability as to whether you use that. So I largely agree with what yeah. most people said there. Okay. Uh, Dr. Bruce, would you use Welpivirine here? No. Probably not, <laughs> because same reason, right? Exactly. Um, so a lot of good answers. One of the things that keeps cropping up, uh, and 8%, it's not a bad answer, picked a boosted protease inhibitor over an integrase. So anyone want to comment on the relative efficacy of boosted PI versus integrase in this day and age? Well, the boosted PIs in general have been shown to be efficacious, and the direct comparison of dolutegravir to boosted dronavir indicated that dolutegravir was superior based mostly on tolerability. So if your patients tolerate it, then it's better. Um, but if you can tolerate the boosted protease inhibitor, it's just as good virologically. Right. And so back in the day, when, remember these things didn't all, all the drugs didn't come out at once, and they, there was evolution. So first was the, um, the most effective ones were non-nukes, and then the PIs came along, and they sort of created the impression, over nevirapine especially, that PIs were more potent. But actually, the five ones work pretty well, actually just as well as a boosted PI. But the concept of it uh, having less resistance barrier is why a lot of people went to a boosted PI back in the day. But I think just kind of keeping up with the data, uh, the boosted, the in integrase inhibitors are equally, if maybe, well, equally effective. I, I mean, I think just the, the, you know, not too long ago we were using, you know, TDF, FTC, efavirenz as initial therapy right. and was working. And globally, that continues to be the regimen. And I think the, 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 the thing to mention is that because of the recent price uh, uh, decrease that was negotiated with, you know, tenofovir, FTC, dolutegravir, single combination, globally at $75 a year, PEPFAR and all the global programs are going to that combination as initial therapy. Right. So, yeah, if I can get it for $75 a year, that's what yeah. I would use. Howard, can I make one point? Um, yes, please. That is. You got you, applause last time. You may, well, I'm going to try again. Um, you may want to spend a little bit of time, not a lot of time, but a little bit of time trying to figure out why the patient's fatigued and having weight loss. Yes. Because if they're depressed, they may not take anything you prescribe. If they have an opportunistic infection, that may have an effect on which, drug, uh, which drugs you select. Right. And that was actually the key that my next question was to Jeff 
Linux because a lot of people would say, well, I'm not going to use an integrase inhibitor here because they could have an occult OI that would induce iris. And it's going to be more common with an integrase inhibitor. Is that true? Well, based on what was presented at Retrovice, no, it isn't. But it is the only study that's been randomized. So as we've all seen, we'd like to see two to 10 more randomized studies to, till we're absolutely positive. I think the take home point is that the virus is evil, right? It's bad, it's evil, right? And, and when you suppress it all of a sudden with whatever regimen, um, the virus is really what's causing the immune system dysfunction as a rule. So you take that out of the picture, the immune system cells, it doesn't matter so much about whether the count's going up or not, it's more just the function improves, and those immune system function improves, it starts to recognize and start to aggressively attack an occult OI that's kind of simmering, and that's what leads to the iris syndrome. It's something that would have been there had their immune system been more functional, you would have seen the OI earlier, you just happen to see it, it's disclosed. With an with a integrase inhibitor, the viral load drops a little bit more rapidly, so you might see the iris a little <coughs> bit sooner, perhaps, than you might with darunavir, but you're still gonna see it, and then you just gotta be ready to act. So I think your point and about paying my, attention to the weight loss. One point I like to make to people is that the famous Uganda cryptococcal meningitis study that saw the 40% mortality rate, they weren't using integrase-based therapy. You know, and they were having deaths within seven days of starting treatment. So right. you get iris even with the PIs and with the Favrin. Right. Let me switch gears a little bit. Uh, Dr. Nagy, if this person was co-infected with hep C, um, you'd like to kind of know that if you could by the time you're starting therapy. Is there any particular regimens that you would lean toward using in this setting? Yeah, no, absolutely. I noticed in both cases you didn't mention their viral hepatitis serologies, um, but I kept quiet over here. Um, so, so this is actually very important both for hepatitis B, which we recognize is not as test, not tested as frequently as it should be in patients, as well as hepatitis C. So, both of those would make a difference in terms of what choice you would have. Um, although, obviously, in many of these cases, you see TAF here for Hep B. Um, for hepatitis C. I would say that first-line therapies, we have a lot of options now, so we'll talk about that later, but for first-line therapies for a Geno-1, we have four options. They all work great, and generally, I could work around just about any regimen you throw um, at, at, at this, but if it was a patient who you knew had HCV and had been treated and failed, and we start talking about retreatment, um, then it gets a little bit more difficult, and the integrase inhibitors are always going to be um, kind of the easy one because they don't have drug interactions with any of our um, DAAs. Ropivirine is another nice, clean, clean one for us. Um, once you get beyond that, it starts to get more difficult. Right, so just to recap, the, especially for pharmacists to know this well, that the Bictegravir, Ditegravir are more glucuronidated, even though there's a little bit of CYP action, CYP34 or whatever, but it's small compared to protease inhibitors, for example. And so that's why the um, integrase inhibitors are usually chosen if you're worried about drug-drug interactions versus a boosted PI. The other thing is that a lot of the newer um, HCV drugs are protease inhibitor-like, <coughs> so they are literally in that class. So the boosting applies a lot of times to those drugs, and so it becomes a challenge sometimes if you have any suffix that's previr, uh, which generally means uh, it's a protease inhibitor. Um, so th that's kind of where we are. I wanted to cover those points. I mean, in essence, this is what it's going to boil down to uh, in today's world of what we're going to use the most. And I think that, um, you know, the notion of boosting, 
I think we could argue about the PI-based regimens at all, um, and just anything that might need boosting, you may want to stay away from just for the future in terms of inhibiting enzyme systems that you don't have to inhibit. And, and so I think there's a trend towards that. Something about pricing that I brought up last year, but I, I wanted to, um, to state again, in, the, in international settings, um, generic compounds are, are relatively inexpensive, and that's good for the international settings, but what it also means is when you compare those prices, these are annual costs, by the way. Uh, if you look at that real carefully, you kind of get a shiver, because it points out that the United States is paying for drug development for the rest of the world, because we are paying a lot more, even with discounts off of ADAP pricing or, or um, 340B pricing, it's still remarkable. So we are paying for the drug development for the world. All right, so Dr. Gandhi talked about long-acting agents. This is more of an opinion. I don't have a, there's no right answer. I just want to see what you guys think. <coughs> long-acting agents are coming along. You got basically the same kind of guy, but he thinks that he would do well with, better with a longer-acting agent. So, um, there he is with 160,000 and 221. If all these types of agents were available in long-acting, which would you prefer? A long-acting pill that might be a tab every week that would work? A very long-acting pill, we heard about the Merck compound that might be co-formulated with something uh, every four to eight weeks or even longer? An injectable um, uh, that might be two cc's in each buttock, as um, Forrest Gump would say, uh, every two months. Uh, an implantable disc, that's the idea where they come into your clinic every three months or every six months, let's say, just like with Depot Progesterone, and you just insert the disc, and that way, if it's a longer-acting agent that starts to have a toxicity, you could pull it out and it would go away, as opposed to an injectable that's there, whether you like it or not. Um, or you wouldn't use them or you don't have an opinion. Let's, let's go ahead and vote. <laughs> Can I ask what, for a... Uh or implantable with an RFID so I can find the patient? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can put a GPS finder. Yeah, that would tip my hand, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and it sucks that we don't talk that much, but I should tell you that I think oh. of you each night. I this is from a relatively new play. Why would you say that? This is from Dear Evan Hansen, which is pretty fabulous. The music is really good. I gotta tell you, life without you has been hard, has been Okay, so we have opinions all over the map. Um, there's no right answer. I think these are all, in some form or fashion, likely in five years to be available to us in some kind of way. Just looking ahead. Any thoughts from the panel? I, th I think this is a I think this is a question that you want to, assuming we have all of these formulations, that you uh -huh. ask the patient. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, it's going to work best if the patient is actually adherent to therapy. And I don't think one of these is going to necessarily be the right one for everybody. No. Okay. I personally would think if a patient is on a pill for some other reason, which as their patient's age they are, um, that I always think, why, why wouldn't you just take one more pill? But patients often tell me, and I'm often surprised by it, that they'd rather take something injectable. but. I agree, it's, it's up to them and it's going to vary by patient. So, you know, the, I mean, obviously the Lattis study showed us that this is a good regimen, but we don't know how it's going to work with, with, a, with a hard to reach and, and, you know, difficult population. ACTG is, 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 is re getting ready to launch a study that is going to look exactly at 
at sort of difficult populations and using, in seeing if this regimen can get more people biologically suppressed. And I think that's really where I think we're going to find whether this really makes a difference or not. Uh, the, the challenge, obviously, with a lot of this agents is, like, for example, with, you know, with cabotegavir, you have to start, and we're doing this in, in HPTN 083, which we're using cabotegavir for prevention. You have to start with an oral induction, oral regimen induction, because you don't know what the side effects are. And once you see tolerance to the pill, you switch them to the injectable. So you're still going to have to suppress the individual with, with pills before you actually put them on the, on the injectable agent. So you're still going to need to have certain, I mean, good adherence to, to get that sort of induction phase before you start injectables right. to somebody. So I, I agree. I think the place where we're likely to see these used the most are in a young person who's not on any other medicines for PrEP. And that's, it's going to be a battle in some ways between keeping them fully, you know, on these drugs 24-7, whether they're having exposure or not, versus the intermittent prep use per episode. And that balancing act will probably and, unfold. And, in the and I will do a shameless advertising. We're currently doing here in Atlanta the, the HPTN 3 study comparing, you know, Truvada versus injectable cabotegavir for prevention. So if you have individuals at risk of HIV, males, men who have sex with men or, or female, uh, you know, we are looking forward to enrolling those patient studies. Just let us know. We will be happy to consider, you know, your, your potential referrals. Okay. Speaking of which, um, this is a question that's come up a lot, and you'll see mm -hmm. how I'll unfold this here in a second. But how do you counsel someone about, in essence, U equals U, if you've heard that term. We'll get into it here. Um, same guy, doesn't, the story doesn't matter, but he started on antiretroviral therapy and taking it every day and religiously and comes back and as you would hope, um, the viral is target not detected and the CD4 counts 390. So, as he remains, assuming he remains undetectable, you tell him that his risk of transmitting to a seronegative partner via sex is this is U equals U, which is undetectable equals untransmissible. It's a, it's a public health uh, messaging movement now. Would you tell them that the risk is zero under these circumstances, or virtually zero, no one knows for sure? That's very low risk. It's still possible. It depends on ARV regimens, or come on, I don't like this question. But you may like the music. You all know this one, right? 1996 rant or rent. Um, right, this is Viva la Viva Lim, end of Act One. No, okay. Oh, this is interesting, huh? So U equals U. Does that mean it's sort of still possible, or no? I'd just like to add parenthetically that I would tell them that their chance of getting syphilis is about 50 percent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with Jeff. I think I think U equals U requires that you take your pills. Yeah. So it's 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 the U U requires that you really take your pills, and if you don't take them, is I mean, but if you're suppressed and you're less than 20, the chance of transmission is zero. Now you will still get syphilis, gonorrhea, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we need to make that emphasis that this is not about preventing all other STDs. The other point is this person's viral load, as best I can tell, has just been measured once at three months. And so you want to make sure Donna has really convinced me of this, that he's consistently 
undetectable. And, and some people think with HPTN052, once people were suppressed for more than six months yeah. consistently, then there was no trans linked transmission. So right. I, I do also give that message, consistently undetectable and, and maybe for a bit right. longer. So the period. operative phrase in this messaging is, assuming he remains undetectable consistently. What, what do you tell him? And I think, uh, Howard, what do you think? Um, I, I think there's nothing in life that's associated with zero risk, quite frankly. So um, it's as low as we can get it, but I think you need to always put it in perspective. Um, and so I would never say it's zero risk. You're likely to get right. sued six months later by the patient. And that's why I phrased the question the way I did. You know, the scientists in us, we all you know, went to advanced schooling and learned about absolute zeros and whatnot. I guess Kelvin, zero Kelvin is really absolute zero. Um, <laughs> molecules don't move. Um, but, but I think we have trouble with messaging. But on the other hand, this is one where the risk is so close to zero that for simplicity's sake, you, you, at least what I do in my practice is I say something like, for all intents and purposes, you will not transmit to your partner. And to date, there's not been a study, even going back to 2000 in Uganda when they looked at partners, serodiscordant, there was no transmission if the viral load was less than 1,000, and that's without therapy. So we're talking about on therapy, less than 20 copies or less, whatever. And, and so it's, I guess, it's like getting on an airplane the risk is higher that something bad will happen there than transmission will happen with HIV. Michael, one of our CDC colleagues is holding her hand up to add something Hi. to the discussion. Can you turn that into a female and a female who's pregnant and risk to the child? I think it's the same, isn't it? I mean, that if mom is pregnant and is on therapy and the viral load is undetectable, from beginning to end, there's, to my knowledge, not transmission. It's, the transmissions occur, to my recollection, when they go off therapy or viral load is not consistently suppressed. I mean, you're at CDC, you can tell me if I don't have that right, but I, I don't know of a case like that, where there wasn't some blip, not, not even blip, like going off therapy. Not really. It's one of our biggest success stories in HIV, right, that we don't see perinatal transmission in the setting of accurate, of good therapy. Okay, one of the questions that came up during the regular session here was what do we do when you do your initial resistance test prior to therapy um, initiation and it's an M184V. So here comes a woman who's newly diagnosed, she's asymptomatic. HIV on RNA is 128,000, CD4 count 350, B5701 is negative. The mutation comes back M184V. It's sure enough there, as we say in the South. Um, she doesn't plan to become pregnant, doesn't have children. She's okay to start therapy if you think she should. And we're looking at basically the same list that we had before. Um, so the M184V is present now. Does that change what you'd recommend? Let's go ahead and vote. Uh. How does the bastard, orphan, immigrant, decorated war vet, do 
unite the colonies to more debt. Fight the other founding fathers till he has to forfeit. Have it all, lose it all. You, you ready for more yet? Treasury Secretary Washington's the president. Every American experiment sets a Even if you haven't seen it or you can't afford to see it, you probably know this is Hamilton, right? Opening of Act Two. Thomas Jefferson. Because he's been kicking ass as the ambassador to France. But someone's. Yeah. Thomas Thomas. Okay. Hmm. Panel. Vasco Duncan Z. What do you think, Raj? I mean, I, I think um, I would not use the back of a 3TC dog to you That was one of the questions from this morning, in part because. <laughs> M184V does have an effect, a non-sensitizing effect on a Bacavir. So I think TAF FTC Dalgotegavir, there are some data. Um, there was a trial called Sailing, where people who had failed a protease inhibitor um, were switched to either Raltegavir or Dalgotegavir, and the people who got switched to Dalgotegavir did well, even if they had M184V. Now, it wasn't a ton of people. You know, it was a, a 30, 40 people, not hundreds or thousands of people but it looked good. Um, boosted Durinavir plus TAF-FTC, I think, also could be a, a reasonable choice. This is a tough one. I, I sometimes, if I'm worried about a person, I will sometimes add one more drug. I will do TAF-FTC with Piverine plus Dalgutegavir, because then I actually have three active drugs, fully active drugs against uh, the virus. But I think we are getting more and more experience with either TAF-FTC, Dalgutegavir, or TAF-FTC, boosted Durinavir. I'm less Personally, I would feel less comfortable with some of the other options. Would you, would you maintain four drugs indefinitely or just for until... It's a good question. I mean, um, in part, I, his person's viral load was... It's a question that I end up individualizing, and, and sometimes I will drop the real pivot in later. I think it's, an, it's a moving target, but the, there's a couple of points I would make when I was thinking of this question. <clears throat> One is that I agree about Abacavir. It's not that it's likely taken out, but it's a hit on Abacavir, it's a hit on 3TC. And yeah, if the viral load is 20,000, that probably won't matter. If the viral load's over 100,000, that's probably gonna matter, even though Dalutegavir is a really strong anchor drug. The other point to remember is that with 184V, at least as far as phenotype analysis, the sensitivity to denofovir actually improves mm -hmm. and can become, quote, hypersusceptible. So what you might be losing with 3TC or FTC, you're going to make up in the tenofovir activity, be it TAF or TDF. And then finally, we've talked about this a lot at this meeting through the years, that resistance to with a 184V for 3TC and FTC does not take it out completely. There's still some residual 0.5 log, 0.7 log activity. So my interpretation of this person, and you know, the data will follow one day, um, is that I wouldn't change a lot. I, I, I would probably use a TAF or TDF-based regimen with a, with a strong anchor drug, be it dalutegavir, bictegavir, boosted darunavir, uh, that type of thing. And I wouldn't, I personally wouldn't add more unless the viral load were super high and then I'd might. Okay. So this is, I always get questions, why don't you ask some resistance questions? So this is one that came up a month ago. A former fellow here, Jody Dion Odom, um, had a patient, and this was her conundrum. She had a patient who had been on a regimen with um, uh, boosted elvitegravir uh, uh, and had viral rebound while on the drug and came back with this S- 147G integrase mutation. So this is for the resistance mavens. Apologies to those who don't get into the weeds on this very often, but I wanted to have one case. So here we go. 
This is an actual story, a 30-year-old who initially presented with a CD4 count viral load similar to the last guy, like identical, and was started on this Alvitegravir TAF FTC regimen um, and had two, over time, two viral loads greater than 1,000 confirmed, and then this S147G mutation came along, along with an M184V. So, patient and provider want to continue an integrase-based regimen. What do you do? Do you go to dolutegravir once daily, dolutegravir twice daily? Hmm. Do you continue elvitegravir, BIC, raltegravir once or twice daily? Some other option, go ahead and vote. Hint, this is not easy. No. No. Ah, no one will probably get this one. It's a play that just came on Broadway about three months ago. You're waiting, I'm waiting, cause that's what we do here. Same as we do every day for something. It takes place in Israel, as the music sort of suggests. It's called The Band's Visit. It'll probably win the Tony this year. Okay, what do we got? So, the majority, overwhelming, was the Dietegavir twice daily. Panel. Yeah, just, I think that obviously if you have any integrase mutations, that the general guideline is that you would use Dolutegravir twice daily, but this particular one doesn't really impact Dolutegravir sensitivity, so I don't know what the answer is, to tell you uh -huh. the truth. I'm very conservative, and I would probably go with a twice daily Dolutegravir. You mean politically, or? <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> no, not quite. Okay. No, I mean, I, I, would not, I would not want to take any risks. Now, okay. twice daily, will they comply with it is the big issue. No, but you said the patient also had an M184, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. So. Yes, I think, I mean, I think the bigger question is, um, is it, do you go with Dolutegravir twice daily, or do you acknowledge that we don't know whether or not there's some risk um, lowering the barrier, maybe this doesn't cause phenotypic resistance, but it lowers the barrier for a new mutation that does confer. Mm -hmm. And instead of going twice daily, that you just go with a third, a fourth drug. So the traditional, the traditional more pan-resistant uh, integrase are 148, 155 type things. And you go to the guidelines, and they say unequivocally, if you failed any one of the integrase inhibitors, you're supposed to use dilutegravir twice daily. End of discussion. Yes, comment. So I had this case the other day where someone had, and, and I, I apologize, I could name every TAM, but I can't tell you the name of the So they had probably like a 92 and say a 147, but not a 148. So they right. lost. So this is an isolated, the 92 changes the dynamic sum. Yeah. So that you probably want to use twice daily dilutegravir to get Besides through. That's my question, though, would yeah. you, I mean, so. One of my docs was like, well, I, I wouldn't use dolutegravir at all. No. And I'm like, well, it, it, that's It's a question of whether you have options. You might not use an integrase. Uh, I, I couched this because the patient <laughs> wanted to use an integrase. The provider wanted to. But if you had no protease inhibitor resistance in your setting, then boosted darunavir would be great, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So let's assume, for the sake of this discussion, because yours is a little bit more complicated, but you're getting to the point that the 147, when you look it up, this is what you see. 
This is on the ISUSA guidelines, and you'll see 148 dalutegravir has some impact, so you want to use it twice a day. Same thing for alvotegravir and raltegravir. Look at 147. It's isolated to only alvotegravir, only alvotegravir, which means that it implies that dalutegravir and um, um, raltegravir will still be active. And in fact, you go to confirm it, and you see on the Stanford database, which collects data from everywhere all the time, um, they say it does not reduce susceptibility at all when there's an isolated, not with a 92, when there's an isolated 147. So now, Dr. Lennox, you are, you are Jody Dion Odom's former um, mentor. Uh -huh. What are you gonna tell her? I'm going to tell her that I'm not a politically conservative person, <laughs> but that I am very conservative when it comes to treating patients, and I would rather over-treat and have some safety margin. And the patient says, I don't know if I want to take twice a day. Well, then I'd, I'd probably would go with the boosted okay. derivative. The, the, there isn't a good answer, right? Um, both Jody and I sort of thought about it. The viral load was low, it wasn't like 1,200, it wasn't 100,000. The M184V, we continued the TAF-based regimen, so I felt decent about ignoring that for the moment. And we put them on once a day. I'll let you know what happened next year. This was only a month ago. So it's, it's how, you know, we get put in these conundrums and we have to make decisions. And this, there are no data outside of the Viking studies that talk about twice daily dalutegravir. So just thought I'd bring it up. Okay, so now we're starting therapy for almost everyone. And, uh, and now there's all this discussion that Jeff Lennox talked about from Croy about immediate therapy in, um, what was it, in Swaziland or Lesotho? Uh, Lesotho. Lesotho, right. So here we go. Here comes a guy, you get called, he's in the ER. Four hours ago they did a rapid test, and it's positive, right? And viral load 17,000, CD4 counts reasonable. I don't know how you know a B5701, but all right. I don't know how you determine the DNA, but you don't. One day it'll be, it'll be positive. So it's a true, it's a true, it's a true case. Um, when would you start? Right now in the ER? Would you get them to the outpatient clinic and start within one to two days in the next two weeks, within two to four weeks, or some other option? Go ahead and vote. This is my theme song. It's gonna be good. It's gonna be good. Two weeks and it's all working just the way I knew it would. And I don't sit at work just waiting for the phone to ring. It's good, 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 good. Billy, you know this one? Next to normal. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be great. It's really a good show. Okay. So, we got some early adopters. Um, Howard, you see a lot of patients newly diagnosed. What, what's your feeling on this? Underscore that word. Um, yeah, it is a feeling because I don't know the right answer. I, I think um, certainly getting the patient in to be seen, preferably, hopefully they have a primary care provider, but if not, getting a patient in, incorporated into the outpatient clinic where they'll be treated with insured order. If it's possible the same day, that's great. If not, within the next day or two, certainly. I have mixed feelings about starting uh, drug therapy right away. I think it'll vary from patient to patient. There's a lot people need to digest when they're newly infected. Yeah. And the concern is that you may overload them or, or set unrealistic expectations for them. And I think there's minimal risk 
for delaying a little bit while you uh, assess them, try to answer their questions about the diagnosis, and then uh, talk about the treatment options. I see affirmation, yes. Yeah, I agree. In fact, I saw a patient yesterday. He had been uh, giving um, sperm donations, and he got called from the sperm donation facility that his HIV test was positive, and it had been negative um, about a year before. And so he came in yesterday, and that's essentially what we did. We said, Let's, we wanted to repeat his test because we didn't have the, the data. And we said, come back on Monday, so within what, two or three days. But to really affirm that we can start treatment and, and get you on therapy, but we didn't start okay. the exact same day. And, and Dr. Nagy, you were saying that you want to know the hep C status, ideally. You want to know the hep B status. How are you going to get that in the ER? <laughs> Uh, that's pretty easy to get in the ED, <laughs> right? right? And those come back very quickly, and in fact, we now have rapid tests for HCV. Um, but for starting therapy, I actually don't think that it's critical to know, and I think it is very important to get these people started for their HIV treatment sooner rather than later. So I, I think you could make a decision regardless of their status and then follow up on their status for you know, their vital serologies to um, make for the decisions from there. Yeah. So, so Dr. Dorio is gonna cover this in the talk at one o'clock, uh, but this, these are data from here in Atlanta. Uh, Dr. Lennox, you wanna tell us about this uh, briefly? This was a study done by Jonathan Colasante and Carlos and others at the Ponce Clinic where they tried to eliminate several barriers that would keep people from getting into the clinic and stopping antiretroviral therapy, I mean, and starting antiretroviral therapy, sorry. And they were successfully able to do that and they had a pre-intervention period and a post-intervention period and the graph shows that there was a slightly higher uh, viral suppression with this expedited introduction. But the most important thing is actually in the table, you know, that they basically enrolled twice as many patients into the clinic in the post-intervention period. So it was highly successful at getting people into the clinic and getting started on antiretroviral therapy if you could do it, you know, within a day or two of diagnosis. Right. So the, the point is, huh, in some settings, it, it, it might be important. Um, but the effort that, you, that it took to set this up and be there, our, I don't know, I'm sure Grady ER is pretty busy. Our ER is crazy, stupid busy. And they can't hold somebody. They have people waiting for beds. The place is overloaded. Looks like the movie Hospital with George C. Scott, you know, stretchers in the hallway. And um, it's just not feasible. It's just going to take so much effort. And it's not like we've got all these resources and people. But I, on the other hand, we know, do know that if, if we delay the first visit for more than four weeks, we lose that patient 30 to 40% of the time. So that's too long. But I think some common sense compromise is where I kind of fall on this. And get them in the clinic within the next two to four days, at least for an intake visit. Our social workers and our uh, nurses do an intake of at least an hour and a half to two hours, orient them, the provider visits followed up in two weeks after that. And it gets them into the system, gets the lab data back. So when they arrive in clinic on their second week, then we start therapy and all the data is with us and we can make a rational decision uh, and it usually yeah, the, works. The San Francisco Rapid cohort, yep. people keep calling it a study. I mean, it yeah. depends on how you define a study, but it's basically a, a cohort analysis of pre and post interventions similar to what we did. 
And so you, there hasn't been a good randomized study. And the one in Lesotho, they did that randomized study because people were way out in these yeah. rural areas. Yeah. And it would have been more than a month till they could have gotten to a central clinic. Yeah. Yeah. I think the same is true in Haiti, where they, in a randomized fashion, showed that people did better if you started the same day. But they were waiting three weeks to start in their yeah. comparison. And it's the same issue. If you takes you three hours to get to clinic, um, yeah. it's a different hurdle. Uh, hurdle so. Right. OK. Hopefully that's helpful. All right, here's another question that comes up is, when should I change regimen when there's sort of a low detectable virus present? Or should I change regimen? So it's a 55-year-old guy diagnosed 18 years ago. His initial viral load was almost a million, CD4 count low. Now doing well is currently you see a bunch of different regimens you can tell over 18 years. But now he's on um, dietegravir, boosted darunavir, and 3TC. But what happens is um, that his viral load um, keeps coming back somewhere between 30 and 85 and bounces around. I see heads nodding. You guys seen the same type of patient. And there's no historical resistance data that you have access to because he was referred to you, but uh, that's kind of what's going on. So should you change therapy now? Yes, no, or not sure. Oh, we're back to Hamilton. Grow up to be a hero and a scholar, the $10 founding father without a father. Got a lot farther by working a lot harder. What's our answer? Oh, okay. So, most would not, some would, good number unsure. So, Dr. Snaggy. What would you like to do here? Yeah, no, I think, you know, low-level viremia, less than 100 copies, is not something that would warrant a change in therapy. You also look at the regimen the patient's on, which is quite potent. So, yeah. um, you know, I think this is not one where you would recommend switching a patient, but you would want to kind of reassess adherence. Are they having difficulty with taking the medicine, side effects, things like that to ensure they're not missing some doses <clears throat> here and there. But it's a little bit of a high sensitivity um, assay problem. It, it, um, it's that, and there's also, I mean, this most often occurs if you look back carefully to your patients who have this, that it's people who had a very high viral load at baseline and probably have a very large reservoir. So they've got a number of chronically infected T cells. And what the antiviral therapy, all it can do is protect an uninfected cell from becoming infected. It does nothing to the cell that's chronically stored in the reservoir. And those cells periodically get stimulated by a vaccine or by an illness, and they get stimulated and virus bursts out of them, and it can spill into the bloodstream and you can detect it. But it's not coming from a de novo replication, which is what the ARV therapy does. So these folks typically are going to be persistently low of viremic because of the reservoir size and periodically spitting virus into the bloodstream. I wouldn't think about it unless the viral load goes above 200 persistently for, for a long period of time. Yeah, Kaufman. You get a resistance panel. Well, you can, get a, you can order a resistance panel, but it's hard to get it of answer back when the viral load's less than 400, right? You might get it at 200. But I, I don't think I'd check because I don't, personally, I don't think in this setting the, the therapy's failing. I think this is just biology. And that's why I brought it up, because we see this and people kind of ask, why should I do? Do, yeah. do you ever get the archived resistance? <laughs> well, I could if I were going to switch therapy, but again, I, I'm sort of sold on the biology and the fact that 
clinical trials and a lot of cohorts have looked at this and don't see any evidence of true failure. Right. So you end up chasing your tail because you can detect a little wobble in the, it could be the assay like Susanna said, but I think it's that plus uh, the biology. So I wouldn't, you know, fight mother nature on this, in my opinion. Well, yeah, I think, I will just say, I mean, at, at Duke, I certainly see people get um, the, the assay on these patients. I think the problem is we really don't know at that low level yet what that means, right? And what, what do those mutations or those um, uh, variants mean? And, and I think then you may end up making a decision based on data for which we don't have um, a whole lot of experience or knowledge of what that means, and it may not be the right, right decision. Um, you know, and especially, as you mentioned, in a patient like this where there's no evidence that this results in failure. Right. You know, when we introduced genotype <clears throat> testing, we did some nice studies where you were provided the resistance data and you weren't provided the resistance data. And that showed the value of resistance testing, but we haven't done that with this archived yeah, resistance yeah. technology. It's pro if you have nothing else, it's probably okay to have. Sometimes just the history of the regimens is good. So let's I move think, on. I think to one last point I'd make is that patient education needs to be incorporated into this yes. because you've got people that may be very anxious about the fact that they have detectable vi virus. Yeah. The cocktail party discussions. What's your viral load? Um, what's your sign? Okay. <laughs> So this is about a woman who um, newly diagnosed because she um, shows up for a pregnancy visit, two and a half months pregnant, not been on treatment before, viral loads reasonably low, CD4 count okay, basically the same story as the other cases. What would you use here? And you've got a bunch of choices. Let's go ahead and vote. Okay, people seem to know this one. Right. So that's wicked. All right. Um, okay, good. So, Raj. You know, here I would disagree with that answer. I think. Um, TAF and pregnancy is, as best I know, still not enough data to, to go to it. So I've still been using TDF-FTC and either a boosted PI, either Adizanivir or Darunavir or Raltegavir. There are more and more data for Dalgutegavir, and I think it just got promoted to alternative um, just a few months ago. But uh, Raltegavir, if you're going to use an integrase inhibitor, boosted Darunavir or boosted Adizanivir if you're going to use a PI. That's what I've been using. Yeah, so this is, yeah, this is one of the questions exactly that I asked last year for those of you who were here and can remember. But the answers have changed a little bit. Uh, as Raj just said, there, Dalutegavir was not, uh, there weren't enough data. Now there seems to be enough data. But TAF is still lagging a little bit behind. Um, the, 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 the company, Gilead, is running a bunch of studies. Those data are going to be percolating in. We probably will see that this summer or so, maybe at the Amsterdam meeting. But right now, just based on the intracellular concentrations, when you're using TAF, uh, nobody knows that that's going to be toxic. So the, the recommendation is sort of to shy away from it a little bit. The guidelines, actually, uh, the perinatal guidelines are including it as a 
possible regimen, but not a recommended. So I think it's in gray zone. But the dolutegravir, despite these types of um, preliminary data that suggested uh, higher levels of transfer into the, into the fetal bloodstream, um, that has, does not shown to be much of a problem so far. So it, it got elevated to a recommend or alternative regimen. So we're in transition, just keep an eye on it. Okay, this gets to Jeff's presentation earlier about platelets. Um, we got this 62-year-old guy who started years ago and he was in your care, moved away, in our case, to Atlanta, then came back to Birmingham. Uh, which is now a suburb of Atlanta, and um, his viral load suppressed. The CD4 count is fine. His cholesterol is reasonable, uh, HDL 52, um, but he's a smoker, 62-year-old guy, uh, no cardiac history, and he's on a torvastatin just because. Everybody, all God's children should be on a statin. And he's on low-dose aspirin. Now, his current regimen includes abacavir, um, would you continue it? Would you switch him? Or some other thing? Let's go ahead and vote. A little obscure. This play, Lost to Lion King, is best musical in 1999-ish. This is a far better play than Lion King ever thought about being. Cole House Walker Jr. Ragtime. It played here at the whatever theater out near the perimeter. Um, yeah. Ragtime. Yeah, it's really good. Okay. Um, current therapy, most people will continue. Panel. Dr. Libman, you are the primary care guy. What are you going to do? Um, I think either one or two is acceptable, quite frankly. I think I would probably opt for two uh, just to minimize the potential risk of abacavir in this setting. But I think considering all the potential risks once you're a male and reach the age of 60, I think it will be a negligible improvement. Okay. Although on the level of risk, I mean, you're talking about a patient that's got a freight train and a tricycle that are both about to crash into him, <laughs> and you're grabbing the trike, right? I mean, the smoking cessation is really going to have by far the most impact. Unfortunately, we can't control it. So yeah, maybe grabbing the trike will keep him from getting bruised. <laughs> Couldn't have said that better. Um, one, of the, one of the questions about platelets, um, to me, in addition to what Jeff said, is what do you do if there's low-dose aspirin? I realize it's a totally different mechanism of action. That's low-dose aspirin inhibiting thromboxane through the cyclooxygenase pathway of arachidonic acid. Does that sound familiar somewhere? In cobwebs, right? So that's the part that Advil and Aleve block at a, at a more potent level, but the aspirin selectively inhibits thromboxanes, but not prostacyclin, which is a vasodilator, which is why we try to use low dose as opposed to higher dose, if you ever wondered. So what does that do to platelets, and has that done overcome the issue? I don't know. Anyway, I, I like the way the audience, I like the way the audience voted. Okay, um, should I switch from, this is common, right? Everyone's getting this, so someone who started on Favrin's FTC and TDF 10 years ago, 
what do we do? So it's a 55-year-old woman who, when she was uh, 41, showed up with a viral load of 36,000 and C4 count of 150, started on uh, Favarin's FTC and uh, Tenofovir DF, has done well. Um, got the single tablet regimen in 06, and no symptoms, feels great for the most part, no complaints, creatinine 0.8, and uh, what are you gonna do? Continue therapy, change to something, or some kind of thing otherwise. Let's go ahead and vote. I'm not wearing underwear today. No, I'm not wearing underwear today. Not that you probably care much about my underwear. Still, nonetheless, I gotta say that I'm not wearing underwear today. Get a job. Yeah. Okay. Anybody know that one? Same guy who did Book of Mormon, uh, won the Tony for Best Musical in 2004, beat Wicked with this play, which was Avenue Q. Hmm. Right. Okay. So the majority would not switch. Stay the course. Panel. 62-year-old, 55-year-old. Yeah, Raj. The only one thing I might do is, if she's postmenopausal or getting there, I might um, check her bone density and. If it was low at this point, I might then think about the TDF issue and getting some bone mineral density back with switching to TAF. So that, that's obviously she feels great, and you can't make someone who feels great feel better. So, uh, but it, I might think about the bone density and proteinuria. So I think our threshold for changing is low. I made the case such that there's not anything jumping out at you that says switch, but it's not too hard to find in the real world reasons to. And in that case, it's good to know we've got options, right? So there was a poster that I didn't get a chance to talk to the author about at Croy, where they looked at just switching to TAF or switching to TAF plus a bisphosphonate, and they showed more bone gain in the TAF plus bisphosphonate switch group. But again, you know, that's just based on reading the abstract. I don't know how good the data is. Uh, yeah. And with the 400 milligram generic, you know, cost hasn't become a major differentiator for us. In the U.S., it is in Europe, and it is in other places like Australia. So that reality may be coming to a theater near you someday soon. Okay, this is, this is a common question, right? This is one that, when I asked, what are the things that plague you in the clinic? And this is one I got back, so I thought I'd put it out there. Coming off of disability. So this is a 52-year-old guy. Um, Wild-type virus, here's the same guy who came from Atlanta back, I made that up, but he's on a nice regimen, Abacavir, 3TC, Dalutegravir, doing well. He's been on disability since 1999, so he's along with Prince, hopefully with a better outcome, and um, now he's fully functional, and he volunteers at a homeless shelter five days a week, you know, kind of full-time, but he's on SSI disability, and he's 52. So he brings in paper with work to you to fill out to confirm his disability. Anybody ever had that happen? <laughs> no, huh? <laughs> There's a revolt. All right. So what do you tell the patient? Sure, happy to fill this out, no problem. Gee, I will support it as best I can, but I can't lie on the form. I'll fill it out, but based on your current status, I can't support your continuing disability or some other option. Go ahead and vote. Appropriate song, maybe. Don't 
Oh, we've got to stop it there. It's going to go to a bad word. Okay. Yeah. The subliminal man, America. Those of you who know the song. Okay. So the majority of people took Ethics 101. <laughs> but how do we balance this out? Are we the advocate for society? Are we the advocate for the patient? Yeah, what are you going to do? Howard, this I, is right up your alley. Yeah, I, I actually like some other option. So okay, if, I, good. if I wasn't a primary care doctor, I'd refer them to their primary <laughs> care doctor. <laughs> Bravo, Howard. But, um, that, 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 doesn't, that doesn't work for me. You don't have to give your talk now. You no, can just go home. I could actually refer them to their ID consultant. Um, <laughs> Um, I think this is, I'd actually do some other option. I think I'd have a, I'd use this as a point for a conversation with a patient to say, we really, sh we, to discuss why they feel they need continued disability and then move them towards a discussion about perhaps ending disability in the future. But I wouldn't stop at cold turkey. I don't think that's appropriate. I think that'd be disability withdrawals. Yes, correct. Uh -huh. So we want, to, we want to do it slowly, but I think I'd use this as an opportunity to have a conversation with a patient about their disability. Is a question? To paraphrase for the audience, uh, so this is someone who missed out on a lot of opportunities for training, being in the workforce when they truly were sick, and that's a different type of, I'll call it a social disability of sorts, and so how can we necessarily abandon them as I hint, guess what you're saying. So the answer is, I think what Howard said, in that conversations, and I'll tell you real quickly and get your comment. Just a second. I, Go ahead. I think God's going to forgive me for lying because he's helping out the homeless as well. Yeah, doing a good job there. Good point. So I had, I've had several cases, and I will say that my in of about 20 who I had the conversation, and they did go back to work, and despite the, you know, the lack of development, they have gone on to do great things um, and are happy in some ways happier being back in the mainstream workforce. Um, now this guy's a little different because he's kind of in the workforce, as you mentioned, uh, Richard, just on you know, helping things out. But, but being a part of you know, having a daily job is, is kind of a part of being in functional society, and, it's, and, and just, that should be part of the conversation. But having had several successes under my belt, I've yet to have someone, in my small number, actually have to revert back to disability in this setting. And so it's a, it's a selected group because they're agreeing to do it. And, but anyway, it's an opportunity for a discussion that I think can really help people. Um, just got a few questions left. And this is one for Dr. Bruce. Um, so I've got a patient on chronic opioid therapy. Anybody got those? Ha! Such a crick in the neck. So same story. Um, CD4 counts good, renal liver uh, is normal, neck pain for over five years, he's got disease in his, um, in his neck with foramen narrowing, but no indication for surgical intervention because there's no distal weakness or indications that the neurosurgeon would do something about. And he's been on this uh, chronic opioid 40 milligrams twice a day for more than four years. Um, the pain is not responding anymore and he wants a higher dose. Anybody had that? 
So, in addition to referring for physical therapy, you recommend continuous pain regimen, augmenting the pain with non-steroidals if you need to, increases morphine, reduces morphine, changes plan to fentanyl patches, send into methadone for pain and weaning off the morphine, or some other option. And we're going to get the true answer here in a second. <laughs> That's really obscure, because that's not even a song. That came from Hair, I'm pretty sure. And yeah, uh, okay, we got it from the hell no, we won't go. Okay, most people pick some other option, because I don't think anybody knows what to do. So Dr. Bruce, what, what should we, this is a prelude to your talk. So stay, stay here for the afternoon, we'll, we'll talk about drugs. So um, there is no good answer, right? So we would say, I would say don't give more opioids, right? Morphine is uh, itself not a great pain reliever. I mean, all opioids make you feel good. Uh, when heroin is metabolized, heroin is diacetylmorphine is metabolized to morphine. Uh, and if you're doing your own toxicology, this is a person that shows up opiate positive. So in the world that we do with opioids, we don't prescribe morphine because we do urine toxicology. My patients have heroin-related issues. And so if you do a urine toxicology, unless you're checking for 6-acetylmorphine, uh, you're not going to know if your patient sold the morphine, shot heroin. So I would be looking to change this person off of a morphine-based regimen to something that's different. Uh, you can prescribe methadone for the treatment of chronic pain. It's split-dosed. It's a little more complicated, but it has a much longer half-life and has better pain uh, relief. The big thing here is going to be helping this patient get off opioids altogether, and that's going to be, I think, the most important objective for this patient. Uh, there's not a lot of data that chronic opioid treatment is appropriate for chronic musculoskeletal pain. In fact, uh, there was a paper in JAMA last week showing that it shouldn't even really be considered, and most of the guidelines are concurrent with that. So I would switch to a better opioid regimen that allows for better monitoring with a plan to taper off. Yeah, and real quickly, this is something I always wondered about. So you met, you just mentioned morphine long-acting, but yet we dose it twice a day or more for pain. Why? So we don't understand analgesia very well would be the bottom line. So methadone is dosed once a day for opioid dependence, but up to four times a day for pain. And the thought is that there's a differential between what's necessary to occupy the opioid receptor to minimize withdrawal and craving, but the analgesic properties have more to do with the C-max, and so that you need to do multiple dosing to get Fair there. enough. Okay, um, that's the last case. I've got a couple questions here in about five or so minutes, we'll go through them. But these are the conclusions that undetectable equals untransmissible and how we communicate that to patients is, you know, whether you're an absolute zero or close to absolute zero. Debate about how soon in the ER or other places than common sense rules. The 184V doesn't change a whole lot except for Abacavir, which somehow I had an Im imagination that that would come up, and it did. The solitary uh, 147G mutation does not impair Dalitagavir or Raltagavir, but what to do about that remains a little bit uncertain. A dietary now okay in pregnant women, PETAF is pending more data, and we don't need to change therapy for persistently low viremia. There's other things we talked about, but those are the key things I wanted to say. So there's a couple questions here. One, they, uh, we're talking about the 
mother-child transmission. And then there was a study at Croy, I think it was Malawi, where um, postpartum there could have been transmission via breast milk. Um, did you all see that? I'd I know it, kind of. Well, what, what I think that study did, and I need to reconfirm, is that that was when mom was treated during pregnancy but stopped and then continued breastfeeding, and then babies are at risk, right? And we've known that for a while. I'm not aware, again, I have to recheck this, this abstract about whether or not they remained on ARV therapy, but I, it's, hard, it, it's hard to imagine yeah, I, I do now recall, now you mentioned, I remember reading the abstract and going, well, what did they expect to happen? Yeah. You know, I'm pretty sure she stopped therapy came off and therapy. she transmitted. I think that's right. We'll double check that. Um, so, well, pivoting also blocks secretion of creatinine, so there's another one you can put in the category. Uh, comments for initial management on patients on methadone. Dr. Bruce, what would you lean towards? They're coming to you, they're not on beep, they're on methadone and you're going to start there on a retroviral therapy. So the three <laughs> drugs with mean interactions are nevirapine and efavirenz that eat up about 40% of methadone, and then a drug that probably you don't have a lot of patients on is zidovudine, so AZT. Actually, um, methadone, for reasons we don't entirely understand, increases AZT levels, and so people have more AZT-related side effects, uh, which actually tend to look like opioid withdrawal, so a lot of abdominal pain and nausea. <laughs> Do, um, how much do you worry about QT prolongation with methadone and ropivirine? Do you? So, great question. So, QTC is prolonged in methadone. It's dose dependent. So, part of it's going to depend on the dose of methadone. Um, methadone doses in the U.S. tend to be less than 200 milligrams. Internationally, they're up, like our programs in Tanzania, are up to 400 milligrams. So. It kind of depends on where you are and what you're taking. I worry most of all for patients on methadone, antiretroviral therapy, and psychotropic medication. So we have patients on Geodon or Seroquel, other drugs that prolong QTC, and those are people that we're routinely screening for changes. So there's a continuation of the discussion about uh, cardiovascular disease on a Bacher. So you have somebody who has a stent, right? And you're worried about platelet aggregation. Does that, would you take them off of a Bacavir? I would just try and make sure that they're still taking their Plavix and their aspirin. <laughs> but I think that's a situation where, you know, in that case you might lean towards doing it because we don't know. And, yeah, who knows? Yeah, it's probably reasonable. Um, so this is a question about a 55-year-old guy with persistent <coughs> viremia, um, uh, 400 on a tripla, um, probably missing doses. What are you going to do? Uh, they're on, say, a Favrins-based regimen, missing doses. Raj, what would you do here? I mean, I'd, uh, as we've said before, try to figure out if there's some other intervention that would get him um, to be more adherent. Uh, Favrins does have a very long half-life, um, lasts for, you know, 68 hours. But probably I do worry about the barrier to resistance of Favrins, and I, in this instance, think about a boosted PI or dolutegravir. But probably more important than that is, you know, yeah. why is he missing doses? And it could well be a toxicity that... Maybe it's a toxicity of the fabrins, yeah. Remember yeah. that, yeah. especially in African-American patients, there's, there's variability. I think it's isoenzyme CYP2D6 that is responsible for metabolizing a lot of efavirenz, and that enzyme doesn't work as well uh, when that enzyme is not working. And so there's a lot more toxicity in African-American populations who have that allele difference. And so the 400 milligram was developed in Africa 
uh, to sort of begin to address that, but that could be a reason they're missing because they're getting toxic and they don't feel good. Um, this is a great question that came up in regard to the 147G question. So why don't we use, instead of using Dalutegravir twice a day, why don't we just use two tablets once a day? And the answer is PK because there's a, there's a saturation on the PK curve for the pharmacist, right? And double dosing doesn't get you much better AUC with two do doses as opposed to one dose twice a day. It's one of those kinetic kind of things. Um, new agents for PrEP, it's a good time to ask it because we're not covering PrEP otherwise. Um, are there any other clinical medications available now or what's coming? And that's a, a great question right now. It's just TDF FTC is the only thing that we know works for, for PrEP. TAF FTC is being compared to TDF FTC in a fully enrolled trial that's I think called Discover. It's a very large trial, but don't have data yet. At Retrovirus, there was an animal study that supported the use of TAF FTC for PrEP, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't extrapolate that to humans, um, so I would still use TDF FTC. Maraviroc was studied, but not enough to, to get a uh, clinical uh, endpoint, so that, as far as I know, is not moving forward. I think the, the new kid really to focus on is cabotegravir IM. This study that Carlos mentioned earlier, the every two month um, cabotegravir versus uh, TDF-FTC, the HPTN-083 is the way to... Is the so Howard, this is a question for you. Um, you got, it's a continuation of the question I asked, but you've got somebody who's on a pretty good current regimen and new modern stuff comes out. Um, and let's say it's gone on enough for you've seen the errors by other people and you're comfortable with whatever. Um, is it important for you to jump to the new kid on the block or do you stay with, you, you're gonna hang with what's working? In general? Um, it's not important to me as long as the medic current medications are doing what they're supposed to be doing. But if it's important to the patient, then we'll have a discussion and, and change as, as, as necessary. Um, so a part of it is patient expectations and what they're looking for. But um, if the current older medications are working effectively, I see no imperative to change. Right. So this is a question about when you do detect this low level of iremia, is that live ammunition or is that um, act inactive virus? And the answer is it's, it's likely to be potentially infectious virus but at a very low level. Um, and But for the antiretroviral therapy, it would have de novo replication, but the antiretroviral therapy prevents that. So that's why when you stop uh, antiretroviral therapy within two to four or six weeks, viral load comes back because those are like embers that kind of are sparks that reignite the infection or the fire. Uh, but th So they can well be infectious, but Going back to the bigger picture of transmission, um, even with that low level 50 or 80 copies, there does not seem to be transmission to others. Um, uh, so, a couple more questions. Should you use um, the um, H, uh, the, the Zoster VZV vaccine uh, in your well-controlled patients? And currently it's what, 50, I think it's recommended? So now I have a finger. 
It's FDA approved. It's FDA approved, yeah. and so the newer inactive one is the one to use if you can, right? Absolutely. Although the other one is still on the list also, you can still use Ostavax if your T cells are over 200 and you're suppressed. Right. I think but the there's no reason data that, are that right. the protection is better and you're not the revaccinated right. so far and that type of thing. Yeah, I think it's important for folks to know that if, if they had the Zostavax, it, the indication is to do this one again because right. the coverage is much better. Right. Um, and so you, you, you'd feel better about ensuring that they are truly covered. Yeah. All right, we're out of time, but the most important question was why didn't I put any Stephen Sondheim songs in that? <laughs> I'll do that next year. Okay, thanks very much for your attention, and nice. we're going to break for lunch now, and I appreciate it.